What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. Welcome in, folks. Today, I have Harvey Gottler here, and Harvey is a referral from, if anybody from those is playing the board game at home, uh, Jim Brock, who was on uh, three or four podcasts ago, had a great story, and uh, he he was nice enough to uh, give me some people that he knew, and, and Harvey is someone who has, uh, Harvey, welcome in, by the way. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, Har- when Jim was talking about Harvey got out in 2019 19. and you started doing some things out in the community that we'll, we'll talk about, but um, some of the things that just helping people as they got back, as you had, realizing that it's really hard. There's a lot of barriers. And I know you're working on a docuseries thing and workshops and uh, all of it trying to bring awareness to it's not easy getting out. Absolutely. It is definitely not easy getting out. And and a lot of people do think that um, because we have all these systems set up that it's supposed to be very easy for us to get out. Yeah. It's not. Well, and I think, you know, we'll get into this, but I think the the one of the things is there's a lot of people that are directing these programs that haven't been impacting themselves. I think if there were more people that were directly impacted who were helping um, create and uh, programs and and services for what they're trying to accomplish, it could be a lot more effective. And I think that's where some of this could, I mean, that's an easy fix. You just start bringing people in who know, and they sit around the table, they have a seat at the table, and, and all of a sudden there's some things and ideas that probably wouldn't have been thought about unless you've actually gone through it yourself. So Harvey... Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where, what was like like when you were growing up? Uh, okay. Where'd you grow up, and your parents um, and siblings and all that? So uh, I was actually born here in St. Louis. Oh, so you are mm-hmm. a St. Louis guy? Yes, I'm from okay. St. Louis. Uh, at one point in time, while I was a toddler, we moved out to Times Beach. Okay, and I lived in Times Beach. What <laughs> for used those to who be don't Times know, yes. <laughs> for those listening in the Cayman Islands, <laughs> Times Beach is not there anymore. No, you just drive by, you can see all the streets and everything. But there was some. Was it an oil uh, asphalt type thing that that was? Yeah. So this uh, this the city couldn't necessarily afford to pave the roads. Yeah. So and so the roads were gravel. So um, they were paying this private contractor to just spray this uh, defoliant and other stuff to keep like the gravel and stuff down. And he was getting this chemical from somewhere outside of Kansas city and spraying it on the roads. And it ultimately, uh, it was toxic. It killed a bunch of horses. People started getting poisoned from it. So were you guys there at the time? Yeah, we were there at the time. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, I have, I have, well, that's why I, I, I wasn't going to ask you about the yeah. tail that you have. No, the, no I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do have some thyroid issues now. I don't know if it's it necessarily be. from that, but, yeah. but it was, it was ultimately like dioxin that they were spraying on the, on, on the, the pavement. Yeah. 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 So, um, uh, yeah, so they it, shut the whole place yeah, down. That had, that it's had gone. to be weird as a kid, right? 
Yeah, it, it was so when because they literally left it as a ghost town, and it, then they we knocked left down it when it flooded. Okay, so they, it didn't necessarily they didn't tear it down right after it flooded. Right after it flooded, people came back for a little while, and then they were doing soil samples and stuff because that's when they realized that uh, they had a problem because it was like a um, uh, the water had like spread it, I guess, and like it created some like awareness of it. Yeah, so they tracked it back to Times Beach and, and all got that. it in the water table. Yeah, so yeah. then. Um, that's when they started making a noise about it. I think it was like 84 or something like yeah. that. We moved in 81. Yeah, I remember flood. when all of it happened. I was in high school at the time. It was it was big news. Big national news, actually. Yeah, it was. Where did you guys go after that? Uh, so then we landed in this town outside of about 10 miles west of D.C. called Reston, Virginia. Yeah. It was cool. It was a nice, uh, it was a really nice suburb. It was. Um, now at this time, is it mom, dad? Oh, no. Uh, it was just um, so sister. When we lived in Times Beach, um, it was just my mom, my brother, and I. Okay, I had, so it was had, three of you. Yeah, there was three of us at the time. Um, my dad had gone to prison for some things that he had done. Um, it was an armed robbery and some other things. How old were you when that happened? I was young. I was like maybe two or three. So you, like that. did you have much of a relationship with your dad since he, he went away so early? Uh, I did ultimately, okay. like later on down the road. Okay. Um. But yeah, at that time it was just um, my mom and my brother and I. He came and went a little bit when he got out and mm-hmm. had to go back for whatever. Yeah. But um, did you yeah. think that was? I didn't know what was going on. You didn't know. That's why I was, I was, I was wondering because as a kid, you just don't understand. No, I just didn't understand what was I, going on. I, funny thing is, I, this isn't funny. I mean, strange or odd. When I moved um, and we moved into a new neighborhood, my dad wasn't with us because mm-hmm. he was in prison, and I remember. Uh, I was like 15 years old and, you know, people bring stuff over like when you move in, you know, like uh, cookies or whatever. And they're thinking, you know, is, is my mom a widow? Is she divorced? And the kids are like, you know, where's your dad? And I always felt kind of weird about the fact because we just decided to just say he was working out of town, which kind of was true. And then we go to visit him <laughs> on the weekend. I mean, I, he did have a prison job out of town, but he couldn't come home. But I always, I always made me feel like, kind of that weird feeling that I knew that I wasn't, I had all this stuff going on as a kid and nobody really knew about it. It was like, you know, I, my dad was in prison and I was a new kid at this cause we had moved from Springfield to St. Louis. So I was mm-hmm. the new kid, but I had this gigantic elephant in the room that my dad had gone to prison and we talked about him just being out of town. So working. do you feel like you were taught early on to keep secrets? Because of having to do that a little I bit. I felt like that was like a big one. Normalized. There was really one person in my high school that knew what was going on at the time. And because his family had kind of been impacted at the time, I felt like we could talk. But um, I always felt like we ran out of town. You know, I loved being where we were in Springfield. And I had great friends. Right. Uh, I was comfortable there. But my dad's thought was he wanted to get away. You know, it's clean start. You know, clean start for everybody. And he was in. He was sentenced to just six months in prison. So it wasn't like it impacted our, you know, our family life for, you know, ten years. But you know, there was enough time to really feel different. There was a cultural impact there that, yeah. that he was feeling. That, yeah, and I, you know, I've always said when 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 someone goes to prison, the family goes to prison because mm-hmm. they have to deal with it on the outside, and everybody kind of has to deal with it on their own terms. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, Later on, though, I, I do kind of remember going to see him one time. That's what I was going to ask you if you When he was in him. the county jail right before we moved to Virginia. Because yeah. he had he had 
just gone back to prison when we ultimately decided to leave this area. Go completely. Yeah, the flood had happened. He had gone back to to jail for mm-hmm. whatever reason. And I kind of remember us like going to see him before we left town. Was your mom supportive at, at that time with your dad? Or oh was no! So they used to have fist fights. So they like, just full had blown like fist fights with each other. Yeah. And it was so a, you saw all that. Yeah, I yeah. saw all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So and, you saw a lot as a kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess. I mean, we all see a lot of it we do. in our lives, yes. You know, my parents, were they, they were like, uh, they liked to fight in an audience, you know, like if they're, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, you, who, who, who was winning the argument? And, you know, that was always kind of weird because they'd have, you know, an argument and then they'd say, you know, who do you want to go with? Yeah, that's traumatic as well. Yeah, what are we doing? <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, it, they, but they, they loved each other, but, man, they were, they were uh, passionate. Yeah, so uh, it, my dad, he definitely, I, I don't know, I don't remember enough at the time to, to say, like, what he was feeling about my brother and I, or whether or not he even, like, gave a shit about us, yeah. to be perfectly honest. Yeah. But um, we packed up, and we moved to Virginia, Reston, and he ended up hitchhiking out there at one, t- at one point, uh, after wow. we'd been out there for a few months, and violated his probation or parole, and... Um, he ended up getting a job at a restaurant that my mom was working at. I don't want to say he was a bartender. Mm. And then just got off work one day and never came home. Just hitchhiked back to that was it. <laughs> back to St. Louis. And that was uh that was the last I spoke to him. Like how old would you have been at that time? Four or five. Oh, maybe. you were really small. Yeah, too. I was really small. I, I remember him doing that though, like periodically when I was growing up. Just like he'd just come in and out of your life? Yeah, and he got together with this woman, Mary, who was, uh, he ultimately ended up marrying her. She was a little bit older than he was, quite a bit older than he was, actually. But she kind of, like, kind of reeled him in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But he would just still, like, say he's, like, the typical, I'm going out for a turkey. For real, I'm going out for a pack of cigarettes. And just never come back. And then he would end up in Virginia at on our doorstep, like, hey, guys, what's up? Acting like nothing's wrong, drunk as a skunk, like... Wanted to be dad, and my mom would just be like, you need to go back to your wife. You need to get to hell. And one time, there was a woman in the car with him. Wow. <laughs> we just got back from, like, school shopping, and we get out of the van, and my dad's sitting in the parking lot at the, the complex where we live. And my mom wouldn't let us get out of the car, even though I think I was, like, maybe, like, 12 or 13 at the time. Mm-hmm. We knew it was going on, but, yeah, she was yelling at him. What was your school like? What was school mm-hmm. life like? Uh, it was all over the place. The schooling, I, so I went to uh, school in Fairfax, Virginia, Fairfax County, Virginia. Uh, I grew up in marginalized areas. I grew up in, like, low income and stuff, but I was actually able to go to a really good school, thankfully, because of the way that the system is mm-hmm. set up there. Yeah, how they had the lines drawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the town that I grew up in, Reston, Virginia, it was a planned community, and so they didn't just have, like, projects off over in the middle of nowhere. They had projects. Like, I literally grew up in the middle of a golf course, but it was all Section 8 housing. That's crazy. And there's golf courses all around me, right? Wow. Um, it had its own barriers as well because, you know, you had the people that have a lot right next to the people sure. that have nothing. So there was a lot of, like, um, there was a lot of conflict between that, class issues between that. But, um, uh, yeah, my schooling... Um, I ended up having to go to alternative school because, like, uh, I just, my family life was not good at all. It yeah. was all over the place. My mom was married to, like, several different men, and 
they were all like battling their own like addictions of of some sort or another um and uh we were witness to that and we also my brother i have a sister now too mm-hmm. that she had with her second husband who was a carny and a biker right he was a transient and uh uh, ultimately, like, was the person that introduced my brother and I to drugs, and we started getting high at a young age, and that was normalized. And and I, it's not, how old do you think you were when you when that started being introduced to you? Oh, I was like eight or nine the first time. Wow, um, I was I, was, I, was I thought you were going to say like thirteen or fourteen. I was allowed to inhale marijuana. They were like blowing it in my mind and my brother's face, like filling up the bong, and like here, guys, like wow, this and. So I was, it was normalized. That was normalized for me very, very early. And then my mom, uh, uh, that married relationship fell apart. And she got together with um, these uh, individuals that were, like, uh, really supportive of the troops during the Desert Storm. Okay. And a lot of them were, like, uh, Vietnam vets and transit themselves. And they come back to the house. And some of them were heroin addicts. So I got introduced to heroin at a young age. How old would you have been when heroin was? Um, I was sniffing it like when I was like twelve. Wow, it was like the first time I started sniffing. I didn't start shooting until like later on because it was kind of I was afraid of needles and like, yeah, those things were just like. And even my friends, we were like we'd make fun of junkies, mm-hmm. even though we all like would go snort heroin. Well, I was going to ask so. you like, what was your friend group like? Oh, they all came from the same neighborhood. I call in that that area of where you were. For the most part, I did have a few friends that came from the wealthier side of town that just didn't give a shit about that. And they had a lot of money to spend. So they'd come down to over to where I lived and they'd spend all their money on drugs and we all like hang out. Yeah. Or we go over into that area and just act a fool and Mm -hmm. do some stupid stuff. But anyways, um, yeah, I, I did have like a, a a mix of friends in just the different areas. But, mm-hmm. um, but did you feel like when when with the heroin and the different drugs, did, did that feel like you were outside of the realm, or that you were escaping, uh, or how did you feel about all that? It was weird at the time because like I'd come through like the Nancy Reagan "Just Say No" mm-hmm. era. Yeah. And they weren't really telling you what the negative consequences right. of just don't the do drugs it. were. It was just, right. just say no, right. just don't do it. It was all like, um, yeah, abstinence, yeah. pure abstinence, right? right. Nothing, nothing else, right? So is there like bringing these like suitcases of drugs into the school yeah. and showing my friends and I what they look like and what the effects are? We're sitting in the back of the class like taking notes like so that then we, does that. we know we can go talk to mm-hmm so-and-so on the street corner about when we want to ask for this stuff. Right. So it was more almost like a research project. It was. And that's kind of like where I, I started getting interested ultimately because I'd, my family, they didn't necessarily, they got drunk and they smoked pot. Mm. No one was doing acid or right. heroin or anything like that. In fact, those are the drugs that no one even like talked about or they looked down on. Um, but ultimately the drugs that I flocked to <laughs> eventually, because I think that people weren't talking about them. Yeah. They were the taboo openly. ones. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so uh, when I was doing it, it wasn't necessarily like I think it was like kind of like I was I was always taught when I was younger not to like just like take something for face value. If someone says it's bad, just don't like Mm -hmm. take it. Just say it's just because they say it's bad. It's not bad. Right. Right. You need to figure it out for yourself. Research it. Right. Don't don't always trust someone when they when they tell you something. So like especially authority figures. (laughs) Yeah. And, And yeah. And so, um, 
I think just part of my rebelliousness and just inquisitive nature uh, drew me to like wanting to use drugs. And then I found them ultimately as an escape from my family life and other things that were yeah. going on at home that, Makes sense. that I didn't want to be around. And that, so as you got through school, mm-hmm. um, so at 18 years old, the was, where, where did you, where did you jump off from, from, Oh, so I'd been in, back to school real quick. My school, I was all over the place. I'd been expelled, suspended. I did ultimately graduate from high school. Okay. After all that journey. After all that, because (laughs) like, it was just at the end of the day, I was like, I have to complete something in my life, right? If I'm not going to complete anything else, I have to do do this this in my life. And this is the one thing that um, I felt like, so really my, my grandparents on my mom's side of the family are really well. Well, I want to know this. Is, so if, if this, if you were falling in and out of school yeah. and you were getting expelled or you were getting that yeah. with your siblings or your brother and, and your mom, was it like, was that happening with your brother and well, all my brother that? was, my brother was right behind. So me. it was just all happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. He and I were right behind each other. My sister's almost uh, not quite 10 years younger than me, nine and a half. So she's quite a bit younger. Yeah, she's quite a bit younger than me. So, But I had these influences in my life that were ultimately, like, the people that I looked up to and the people that, like, I wanted to, like, look down and say, wow, he's doing a good job. So ultimately, like, my grandparents are the the reason why I graduated from high school because they were the... the, They steadied you. Yeah, they were the people that I saw had, like, a steady... At that time, mm-hmm. I saw that what they were doing was steady. Was um, uh, were yeah, they was close safe. to you safe. or around in your life? Yeah. So my grandpa, my mom's dad, pretty much was my father figure in okay. my life. They would come and pick me up from Virginia, and we'd meet them in St. Louis, and I'd do a bunch of things in St. Louis for a couple months during the summertime, a couple weeks during the summer, and I go back to uh, Virginia, and then and then when I was in Virginia, though. They lived here in St. Louis when I was in Virginia. My mom's mom and her new husband, uh, this excellent man, uh, Herbert Fix, he he was a colonel in the Marines. He passed away about a year ago, uh, actually a year ago around this time. Um, he uh, was my father figure here mm-hmm. in Virginia at the time. And they were really, uh, both of those individuals have accomplished a lot in life. So, like, looking at them, they were my idols. They were the people that I looked, looked to, to and wanted to emulate ultimately in my life, even though I was doing these other things. Mm-hmm. So graduating from high school was a big thing for me. Yeah. And then um, college was kind of just like, yeah, whatever. I ended up just living on the street and falling into drugs really hard after that. And ultimately like made a bunch of bad decisions that led me to uh, living a life of going in, in and out of prison. My Mostly drug-related stuff where you could just yeah. easily get picked up on or you're trying mm-hmm. to get money for this or that, and you get picked up and you get charges. And and just petty stuff, for yeah. real. Like, um, yeah, uh, uh, parole violations uh, that, that really could have been... Um, just like uh, kind of like a merry-go-round. Yeah, absolutely. You get in and you go out, get yep. in and go out. Did you feel like that... When you were in, and then you get out, did you think you at any of those times, hey, I'm going to make a big change here? This is going to be you know, this time. It's going to be a big change. Did you ever have like a oh, moment? Every time I was in before I got out, yeah. every, you know, um, I don't, I don't know how many times you've been in and out yourself, but for the most part, 
people, when they're getting out, mm -hmm. they always talk about all the changes they're going to make, even mm -hmm. prior to months prior to leading up to, you know, they start playing. It's like everybody's start, New like, Year's Eve. Yes. <laughs> But once you hit those gates, yeah. reality hits. Right. And you realize then that all these plans that you made on this timetable mm -hmm. are not going to fall into place because the world is not going to work on that. So then, like, things start changing. And uh, for some of us, it's the reality of um, the fact that you're on probation and parole and you have someone telling you, controlling your life, right. and ultimately making, making these decisions for you Yeah, um, that's... I had to struggle with that. I had a couple of probation officers that I really didn't get along with. Um, and, it, and it really, it was more or less just like a, a character difference that mm -hmm. that ultimately led to us not getting along because I wasn't doing anything wrong. I, three months after I got out of prison, or three weeks after I got out of prison one time, I had a job. It wasn't very, I wasn't getting paid very much. Uh, my probation officer, as soon as I notified them that um, I was on, uh, I had this job selling newspapers. Uh, they uh, told me it wasn't lucrative enough, and I had to find another job. Mm. So uh, a couple weeks later, I found another job working at a restaurant uh, down in South City, South County, Rich and Charlie's. And so I had two jobs at this point. And um, the, the one job I wasn't making enough, the, the uh, job selling newspapers. So I wanted to find something that would be a little more stable. So also had, wouldn't have to work at Rich and Charlie's as well. I found a job where I was making quite a bit more money. Mm -hmm. And on top of it, I would have benefits. Mm -hmm. Well, I took this job and now she violated me for job hopping. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. Well, see, that's the crazy thing I think that people don't know about is is that that's all put in place to is in his whole to the public that this is going to be a big help. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's so many different times. I know uh, when I was working with this halfway house at St. Louis, the Dismas house, I mean, there were times where I would hear stories where, you know, s somebody had gotten a job and then the person would show up and that kind of a, put that uh, boss in a weird position. And so he just thought it was just too much. He saw just let go of that person. Mm -hmm. I can't be interrupted with this kind of stuff. So there were just things that happened or you had to be at this treatment thing. And so you didn't get the hours. And so they just fire you. And there's so many different things that happen. And, and what you're saying about that rotating basis, I think is one of the more interesting things too, because, you know, two thirds go back and three years, three fourths go back and five. And, and we talk a lot about this on the, on the podcast, but, there's real reasons why that happens. And it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody's not trying to get a second chance out there. It just means that, Hey, I went and tried to find a place to live and they wouldn't let an ex felon live there. And then this person wouldn't let an ex felon. And then you get in and then you're all the way down the road. And then you go to try to get interviewed and you've got to check the box off that you're an ex felon. So you've got that, that, that tattoo on your head, knowing that you, so, I mean, you have to be, your mindset has to be twice as strong your will has to be gritted to no matter what, I'm going to get this. And some people just get like, man, this was easier going back, you know, or, or I, I'll violate this. I go back. You know, you see that you even see that in the movie with Shawshank, you know, these guys get out and say, I, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, Brooks hung himself in, in the movie, but there's, and I think that movie, the reason why that movie is so effective, there's so many different layers of that movie. When you look at prison and, and real life and how that all, that movie really grasp that feeling, that vibe, whatever that is of what people get into these big, ugly routines in prison. 
And that kind of becomes the warden of their freedom because they don't, freedom's no longer familiar to them. And they, they'll stay in that institutionalized world because that becomes uh, more comforting, which mm-hmm. is, which is an odd thing. And I, you know, with, with you, Harvey, going in and out of prison, did you have kind of a way that you handled your time in prison? I ultimately did develop a way that I, and that was disconnecting from the outside completely because that was the like only way. Like it didn't way. exist. Yes, like it didn't exist because that was the only way that I could effectively, that's that's ultimately how I did my last stint in prison was I, I, I communicated with a few people, but I wasn't on the phone all the time. It wasn't an everyday thing. Mm-hmm. I'll call maybe once, twice a week. Um, and it wasn't like I had to talk about everything that was going on out there. You know, I was just letting everyone know that I was okay. Yeah. You know, because, still here, still here, because I really had to focus on myself. And I realized that if I was like worried about everything else that was going on, like I had been doing all my other bits and like staying on the phone and like demanding that my family send me money. Meanwhile, like my family didn't put me there. Mm-hmm. The state put me there. And ultimately what I found out is like by them sending me money, they're helping the state like mm-hmm. keep me housed in this facility. So I, I started feeling like weird about that as well. Like having my family, like keep me in prison that started. But anyway, so, um, like, did sh- you have like a prison job that you busied yourself with or did I, you? So I did work yeah. in the, in the library yeah. at, at most of the facilities I had landed in the, uh, Farmington and Pacific, mm-hmm. uh, the last two places I was, uh, I did work at, um, and Moberly I worked in the library. Ultimately, I was a tattoo artist, mm-hmm. and that is like a, 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 it's a big deal that, in like, prison, man. That is a hustle that like yes. it never gets old. No, how did it, you come up with that? I mean, I mean, how did you get? I mean, because that I, I there were two or three tattoo artists at Leavenworth, and mm-hmm. they did incredible work. You're in and out of the hole all the time. You're a constant target. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Did uh, you by inmates and staff as yeah. well? So, yeah. but did you did you know tattooing on the on the streets? No, I knew how to draw. Okay. And I had a few tattoos, and I had um, one of these, like, people that I'd met in my life somewhere along the lines uh, had taught me how to make, like, a homemade tattoo gun mm-hmm. and kind of, like, the logistics of it. And my brother and I had fooled around on each other and, like, done some stupid crap. Is it true that you can take newspaper and the print of the newspaper and be able to break that down into a tattoo gun? Um, I don't know about the okay. ink off of that. Um, I was using <laughs> I like just, soot from other Somebody things. said yeah. that one time. And I said, man, I don't know how in the world that would work. Yeah. I don't know. That would take a lot of work to. Seems like it would, wouldn't it? Yeah, because ultimately what you're using is like um, soot, which is yeah. like uh, what we use to make the ink. It's like um, after you burn plastics or things that put off like a lot of smoke, it's carbon 13. It's like yeah. the. Yeah, there's nothing there. So, so you would you get caught? Get go to the hole? Yeah, for, I got caught a bunch of times. I, yeah, I was in and out of the hole quite a bit. You're probably um, prison rich though, with being a tattoo artist. Yes, I was. I was definitely very prison rich. And, and also, you, yeah, you even even so. One of my cases, I have a sex offense, and even being a sex offender and being a tattoo artist, I was not down at the bottom of the food chain mm-hmm. when I was in prison. So I'd also been in and out and a bunch of people knew me by the time I came in with a sex offense. So I didn't also, I didn't have to go through a lot of like the trials and tribulations that I saw a lot of the other people going through. Well, I mean, that's the, the and it sucked yeah. for them because you, I was just like, I felt so bad for a lot of those people sometimes. And it was just like, what do I do without like making myself a target as well? Well, and, and you explained to me a little bit about mm-hmm. that 
with your deal, it wasn't you actively, you were aware of something going on and you didn't report it. Yeah. And then you were on probation. And so they, it violated your parole. So yeah. you carry that tag, but it's, it's not, and, and if you don't go any deeper than that, that's all you see. Right. And, that's a tough one because I know that, you know, that, that usually is that you're at the bottom of the food chain in the prison world of, of mm-hmm. that. But like you said, you would actually, and, and being a tattoo artist in prison, um, you step up the food chain. Yeah. Very easily. Mm-hmm. You become like a desirable commodity as yeah. soon as you move into the wing. And yeah, so I didn't know how to tattoo at all. I had a couple tattoos. Um, I, yeah, I get into, um, uh, I get into prison, people see that I've got tattoos, and they see that I'm drawing because I am drawing to kind of make a hustle to supplement uh, instead of... Because it, it really is kind of demeaning to have to call home and ask yeah. a family member Never to send like you that. money. Right. Uh, it, and especially when you know that they have children and they're trying to yeah. make ends meet and things. So that, that becomes like taxing as well. So you try to find other things. And the prison system, they don't pay you very much. No. Uh, I, I, all, one time I was getting $35 a month. I think that was the highest I was making in Missouri. Um, but anyways, so, uh, this guy asked me, can you tattoo? I didn't have any money on my books. He offered to like put a bunch of money on my books. And I was like, I can do this. Yeah, I can do this. I lied my ass off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I lied my way all the way through this and I was nervous as shit and it worked out. It didn't look that good, (laughs) but it worked out. He was okay with it. He was okay with it. He was happy with it. Yeah. And that's ultimately what matters. That's all that matters. Because yeah. some guys that weren't good, I, I saw that they, uh, some guys would get infections and like the, yes. you know, the, their arms would swell up and mm-hmm. they'd get uh, staff and it was, it yes. was bad. Yeah. You know, the, the guys that weren't that good were, you know, immediately known that they weren't good and because mm-hmm. there was re- repercussions of it. So when you finally, because the other thing I was kind of interested in, Harvey, is because you had this this drug from early on, um, did, did you feel like at the, at the, as you were going through this and going back and forth in and out of, of prison, um, like, I guess, you, would you dry out, have these, like that first 48 hours or 72 hours to where did, or was it not like that? Um, at one point, so I was clean from heroin for a while for 10 years. Okay. There was a 10 year period between the last time, the, the last few times I'd used. Um, and that was because of when I'd gotten out of prison or prison of Virginia in the early 2000s after my first stint. Mm-hmm. Um, I had gone out to a bar. I ran into a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And he just hooked me up right then and there. And, like, I was I, – I, It gave was me easy. Some, yeah, he gave me some heroin. And, like, it was just like, all right. And he was like, be careful with this. And I was like, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I went in the bathroom. I did something. I was cool. But it still wasn't enough. So I immediately went in to the CVS and got me a rig across the street and walked to my mom's house, which was just maybe a couple, like, not even a block closer than my house. I could have gone to my house. Mm-hmm. But I went to my mom's house, and I OD'd. I ended up, like, shooting up just a couple, like, I think it was, like, a, a week or so out of prison yeah. in Virginia. And uh I OD'd. Yeah. And the, the police, uh, every, I woke up, the ambulance was there, you know. Um, the look on my mom's face when I was in the hospital was just like, that was horrible. Yeah. So. Um, I'm curious, when, when um, you said you went back in, uh-huh. people knew who you were. Yeah. Did, and, and you had that 
and I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, because but on on the violation of the you know we're talking about a teenager and your girlfriend, mm-hmm. um, and she was having basically in a, a relationship with the teenager, yeah, fifteen sixteen years old. So uh, you find out about it. You guys, I think, break up. Um, but then they come and they they uh, question you about it, mm-hmm. and because you didn't know about it. Or no, because you didn't say anything about it, reporter, you got wrapped up in that and it violated you. So did those guys, I'm curious, did those guys know going back in that that was your thing, that that's, ha- that's what happened? Um, ultimately, that I got violated when I went yeah. back in. That's when you came back in, I mean, did they understand, not only the tattoo guy, but you said you, you kind of didn't have to deal with that Oh, world. yeah, because... Um, it because was, those guys had the of, hardest world in the world. It was kind of like a. It was kind of like I can't believe I'm actually locked up for this. Like yeah. I can't believe this is what I'm going back to prison this, and for. What, right? And how much time were you looking at from that? For the oh, violation, it's because I was already. I already had um, a record, a past. Yeah, they were trying to throw the book at me. I lived in this small town in Lebanon, yeah. Missouri, and they were trying to hammer me. They wanted to. They were trying to give me all seven put years you, on this. Just put you away. They did not want to negotiate with yeah. this at all. Uh, and I sat, I ultimately sat the remainder of a sentence in prison, like fighting this case. And then once I got out, then they wanted to work a plea deal with me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the thing in Pacific where, where you and Jim Brock uh, meet up and then there's a program. How did you get introduced to the program with Wash U? Um, so I came back in on a violation for the sex offense. I was at Farmington. I refused the program. I was just like, I'm going to complete my sentence. This is going to be the best thing for me. I talked to my family. They agreed as well because they knew uh, um, just my history, mm-hmm. right? So they were like, okay, if you're okay with this, you're just going to do the rest of your sentence. So when I did that, they ultimately rolled me off of, they sent me from Farmington to, to Pacific. To Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, and they put me in general population. I was already in general population, but, but they put me on a camp where it wasn't primarily sex offenders and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I, I get to MECC. They put me through, which is Pacific. They put me through uh, orientation, and they talk about having a college program there. Mm-hmm. Now, normally when you get to, like, R&O and the orientation, people aren't listening to that and stuff like right. that. It's the same crap. They, they give you the Prius stuff and all that, right? And right. it's the same video they show you, like, in Ohio, in Virginia, and in Missouri. Mm-hmm. So, but this piqued my interest. And it was just like, hold on, I can get, like, college credit while I'm in. Because I had been looking for that, sure. but they were saying you had to pay for it and all this other That's stuff. That's from a great university. Yeah, and, and it was from Washington University. So as soon as I, f- I found out about it, I went and asked my caseworker about it. And I don't talk to my caseworker mm-hmm. ever. I, I don't talk to the COs. I, I don't want anything to do with them because pretty much they're useless, really, right? right. And when you do have interactions with the caseworkers, it's normally them, like, trying to throw you in the hole for a violation. It's not them trying to point you in the direction of a program. Right. So um, uh, I also knew that I was horrible in math. Mm, me too. So that's I was why working I took, in the library. That's why I took political science in college. I didn't, <laughs> math wasn't required. Yeah. <laughs> so I went, yeah, that, that's what I was going for is political science. But I did go and take a couple of math books out of the library that I noticed hadn't been checked out in a long time and yeah. took them back to my cell and held them there for a long time. And uh, two or three hours a night, I would sit in these like, in these algebra books, pre-algebra books, uh, college algebra books, and and get to where I thought that I needed to be 
in college algebra and get myself in this mindset, okay, I need to study this time, I need yeah. to do this. And then also um, the people that are coming asking for tattoo work, they realized I wasn't answering the door during this period. So that yeah. like I was also like separating from that uh, that as well. I had to make that separation because that became a pain in the ass as mm -hmm. well. Being a college student, full-time college student that was taking six classes at one point in time mm -hmm. and pe and trying to support myself in prison through like tattooing, through tattooing. <laughs> and not go to the hole for it at the same right. time. That was, that was a, a, a task. Yeah. yeah. But um, uh, I get there and I, I start befriending everybody that's in the program mm -hmm. as well. Right. And then um, there's this guy, Nathan Rogers, who I knew from being in and out at other times as well. I've been to other camps with him. Um, he and I become cellies and all, I, just kind of like get my way in there and uh, I take the test, I get in and yeah. I think it's interesting. That's, I think it's, it's a, what you're saying is also a very good tip for uh, people when you're trying to get to something, mm -hmm. uh, humble yourself and find out who's doing it. How are they doing it? Uh, how can you do it? And that's what you did. You started getting familiar and around the people who, where you wanted to be and that worked for you yes. to get closer to that program. I did not want to be on the yard. I yeah. did not want to be getting high. I didn't want to be doing all these other things yeah. that kept sending me to the hole and yeah. doing all this other shit. And ultimately like leading to me coming back to prison once I got right. out because I wasn't like, I'm not going to say I didn't have skills because I, I, I your IQ is your IQ. You can right. like bring it up a couple points or whatever. Yeah. So, I think I've always been fairly intelligent, just being able to harness it. And oh, I could tell that just when it. we were talking on the phone. I mean, you're very articulate about what you're, uh, what you're doing, what you're about, and well-spoken. So, yeah, it does, yeah. doesn't matter where you come from. No. I mean, somehow, sometimes just how you're wired. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the program, that ultimately ended up being the best choice I made while I was in prison. Well, how did it work? Um, they come to you. Did they come to you in that program? Did WashU people come to you? Did you go online? Like what? No. So the, the the professors and the TAs and the tutors and the administrators and the advisors all drove forty five minutes. That's incredible. Out to uh, Pacific Missouri from Washington University. That's really incredible. Yeah. It really so, is. Some of them didn't even necessarily have cars, so they were having to go through like a ride-sharing program. Wow. And they're still doing that now to yeah. go out there. And now they're going to Vandalia as well, which is even further. That's a women's prison. Yeah, it's a women's Vandalia, prison. Yeah. yeah, it's a women's prison, yes. They they just admitted their first cohort this year, I want to believe. Uh, and I'll, I might be misquoting this, but I th I'm pretty sure there's like 20 students in the program out there right now. So did yeah. you graduate from the program while you were in? Yeah, I, I ultimately, um, I earned an AA in 2019 while I was inside. Yeah. 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 Wow. Very cool. Yeah. I busted my butt to get that too. <laughs> I mean, that's just really cool. I mean, that very rarely are you able to accomplish something like that. They don't, because the program's not there, but you took mm -hmm. and saw it, went after it, found out what you needed to know about it and got in it. And the, and the, the thing that is, people might assume because we have a college and prison program mm -hmm. that the prison is completely on board with this and yeah. we're allowed to freely come and go and attend this program. Like you would normally attend a program that you would think would be in a, in a, in a carceral institution or a prison setting or something like this, but it was not that at all. It was an uphill battle every day with the COs. You did have COs that were oh, on board. Also it was new. So yes, it was news new. not liked when no. in the prison no. world. <laughs> no, no, definitely not liked. Yeah, and, and it was also like I think at the time, like um, 
Afterwards, I got out and I spoke with a couple um, uh, lawmakers and senators mm-hmm. and stuff, like trying to push for uh, 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 the rollback of the ban on pal eligibility pan eligibility for uh, currently incarcerated people mm-hmm. and the the talk was about like vocational and 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 like labor mm-hmm. trades and things like that well this is not any of that right and this was coming into an institution and taking up space where they wanted to put a vocational trade or or something like that and they're not teaching people to go out and be like productive did they in the labor force they're teaching people to be creative thinkers exactly that's different be, yes a lot yes, different yes i'm trying to remember though did they cut some of the people that worked in the prison in on the program too that they could yeah do? they did yes so that was probably smart because mm-hmm. then they were being part of that taking advantage of that situation of everybody being educated in a yeah. in a way that they did but i think they fell short and they they just were kind of like naive in thinking that like all these individuals that work at the prison because they work at a prison have some kind of education that they will be able to benefit of of, of having this college sure. education sure. or would be interested in even having this education or would be willing to even have the time to go to St. Louis to go to classes right but meanwhile, um, most COs are pretty are marginalized, just like the people that are in the prisons themselves yeah. and are just having to like they're having to work day to day themselves exactly. at that institution to support their families. Right. So it's really not necessarily viable for them to drive into the city if they live out in the country. Right. Forty five minutes to have access to this. Yeah. Um, I think they have rethought that. And now they're offering virtual classes because now um, University College at, at the time didn't have a virtual Courses. In fact, you couldn't even like transfer virtual courses into the university; they wouldn't be accepted. But now they do have like almost the whole university, university college, which is part of Washington University, is all virtual. So now they've probably rethought that and made it more appealing to the staff. But I don't know how they've done that. So going back to to the family stuff, your brother was he in and out just like you were, or how did you? Because it's, yeah. I feel like you guys, just the way you talk about it, that you were close. We were. Uh, did, did you guys remain close through that growing up period to where you are today? Um, no, we did drift apart, ultimately. Yeah. Um, we were very much the same, though, but we did drift apart in lives. We, he went to... Um, uh, he went to like a diversionary program when he was younger, like a boot camp mm-hmm. for like 18 months at, uh, in this uh, town, uh, Greensville, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, got out and um, started doing better for himself. He still struggled with addictions and things like that. And in 2014, he died of a heroin overdose. Mm. But he was working for the NRA at the time. And he wow. was in Indianapolis for the NRA convention. And was he and his... Was it something he lapsed into? Um, I don't think it's something he lapsed into. I, um, he and I were having phone conversations, and they weren't good phone conversations. We were arguing. We were arguing a lot, and mm-hmm. it was ultimately over a lie that my mom had started uh, while I was on the run. She said that I was using his uh, social security number and all this stuff, and I wasn't. You know, that's like the dumbest thing I would have done. They're looking for my family members to question them where sure. I am, right? Yeah. So. Um, it created a big rift between he and I because he was in the process of like creating this family and trying to do good for his family. And I understand that. That's mm-hmm. why I wouldn't have never done anything like that. But um, he and I drifted apart because of that. Where with that and other lifestyle choices that I had made as well. Like I was open about my addictions. I wasn't really trying to hide them. And he was very under the cover 
undercover about him, but he would call me like, ex- like shit face drunk and like just berating me about being an, a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. And it was, <laughs> it was yeah. sometimes I wish I would have recorded those so he could have heard them later on. But um, yeah, he struggled as well. Uh, um, Whatever happened to your dad? Uh, my dad is in St. Louis somewhere or Lebanon somewhere. I don't really have a relationship with him anymore. Yeah. I, I did try to cultivate one with him. Mm-hmm. That's why I la- landed in Lebanon, Missouri, is because I came down there to be with him. Mm-hmm. And that didn't, didn't he, work out. No, it didn't work out too well at all. He, he, he wanted to be a father even though he wasn't necessarily a father. He still wanted to, like, try to – uh, and, and also he did a lot of like the blaming of the reason why I was doing things the way I was doing them was because of my mom and not because of him mm-hmm. or the choices that anybody else had ever made in my life to like it could have make messed, me the adult I was. It could have made right? things tough, right? Yeah. So that was hard for me to deal with and bite my tongue without like just telling him what a shitty father he was all the yeah. time because that doesn't help either, right? That just makes the situation. No, and you can't worse. go back and change it. No, and you can't. So you get out and, and you get this uh, – you know, I, I would think you were feeling pretty good about yourself getting into this program, doing well. Uh, when you get out, I, I think the interesting thing is, and what what drew me to to uh, when Jim Brock was talking about it is that you saw a need when you got out because you had been in and out and knew the barriers, mm-hmm. knew, knowing that people needed help, and you created um, the St. Louis Reentry Collective and. I think what I'm understanding how it worked was is that you, it was from donations, but people uh, would donate to the cause and then people who needed help, you were there as an organization to be able to get them to their next step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, when I got out in 2019, I was working with uh, the Washington University's prison education project, helping them start a reentry program. And from my own experiences, you know, I, I knew that there was a need from these things. And then also, like, other people reaching out to uh, uh, inmates on the inside, reaching out constantly while we're in the process of building this program, saying, you know, they need housing, they need A, B, C, and D. And I'm working at this university that already has all this built into it. Right. It's, it has all this built into it already, right? And I'm and I'm just like banging my head against the wall, like why can't we? Why just, can't we like, do this? Why can't we just allow someone to come stay at a dorm? I understand there's like yeah. a whole bunch of bureaucracy and red tape and policy and politics behind it, but so I, I realize that I have access to a network, right, of people that can help me provide these resources for right. people. So um, I reached out to. Also, at the time, this incident had just happened with George Floyd and stuff, and I was reaching out to other uh, uh, policy members and aldermen in in, in the community and talking about where I'm coming from, and they're like, hold on, you're coming from an institution that has $8.4 billion, and you're asking us for help and resources and money and stuff, so... I was like, all right, I gotta get it. I gotta rethink how I'm doing this. I gotta go. If I want to do this effectively, I need to separate myself from this organization, and I need to reach out to the allies that I've already like made through this organization, and and create. Uh, we ultimately created the SCL Reentry Fund, which became the SCL Reentry Collective. Uh, yeah, we were so we were we started off with small donations, mm-hmm. small five ten dollar donations. Um, 
at the time we were getting like 40% of our donations were from monthly donations, weekly donations of five, $10 small 10. But we did um, other things like uh, uh, t-shirt drives. Mm -hmm. um, and then we would just publicize things like every so often and do like just drives to try to raise money. And we didn't really know what we were doing, but we just had access to people that uh, oh, had bleeding great. hearts, which worked out you really well You just took action and, and got recognized, which Leads me into the, the, the docu-series and your workshops. And I know you spend a lot of time on these different topics, which I think is great because it, this, it's such a, an important um, issue. Yes. So what, what is your docu-series and, and your workshops? What's, what's the uh, motivation behind it? What does it do? What do you want it to do? All right. So the motivation behind it is while I'm sitting in prison, I'm calling home. All I can hear my mom talk about is 60 Days In mm -hmm. and Locked Up Abroad and all these other shows that demonize what is going on on the inside. Right. Right. And then you got these other shows that kind of want to like steer this narrative of negative behaviors on our behalf that lead us back to prison. Mm -hmm. And and it's and I'm just like banging my head against the wall. First of all, prison is very long, boring, monotonous, and te it's boring as shit. Yeah. And then there are these like moments of high tension that are explosive, and they just happen out of the blue. Yep. But it's boring as shit in there. Mm -hmm. It is not in in there, and you do create these like microcosms of like of what is going on out here in society. It's almost translated inside, mm -hmm. just in a different way. Mm -hmm. we, we have the same kind of relationships on the inside. You ultimately, like, societally, the same structures develop on mm -hmm. the inside. So it's not, it's not too different. Just more primitive. It's just, it's just right. And, and, and we're limited to our movement. And then we're also, also a lot of what we're doing is, like, reactionary to a, a policy that, like, keeps us, like, from developing these relationships in an impactful way. Um, but when I got out, um, I, when I was going to university college, I took this course in there on, like, uh, filmmaking and stuff like this. I, I dropped it. I feel bad. Because it was, like, the, the really the course that I love the <laughs> That's most. That's the one you wanted. And, and I, I give much uh, props to... Uh, Fritz Faber, who was the the instructor of it, he said he never gave out A pluses, and he gave me an A plus on my first project, wow. and I was just like, and I felt so bad because I dropped the class, right? <laughs> and it was, and I did a video of Jim Brock, right? And it was this video I did with Jim Brock, um, of right after he got out, and right. he was doing he was doing some of his dog training and stuff. And when I put it together, I realized that there's a couple things I could do with this. Once it could, I could normalize, like actually, like that we are real people when we get out and we come from many different socioeconomic backgrounds, different cultural experiences and things like this and normalize the fact that we're not violent people. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just like everyone else. So looking for a second chance. Yeah. Just yeah. looking for a second chance. And, and there are not and it's not always necessarily uh, personal barriers that send us back. There are systematic barriers as well that send us right. back. And I, and, I, and I realized that through uh, talking with other people as well. And I realized I could, this could be a powerful tool. Mm -hmm. So um, an opportunity came open with um, the divided city initiative and the Andrew, D Andrew W. Mellon foundation to uh, uh, finance, to do a community grant in the, in the local area. And I applied for it and, and, I got it. That's and fantastic. It was, yeah, it's fantastic. So um, ultimately, my goal is to, I want to, let me backtrack a little bit here, because there was something else that influenced me that I think was important in this mm -hmm. as well. Like, um, I was attending these webinars on uh, 
grassroots organizations and how they got started and where they got started. And this was on street medicine in San Francisco City. And it's this organization that goes down into, like, the large homeless populations and comes down there and does, like, uh, 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 triage medicine medicine and surgical services and stuff like that. Instead of having a homeless person that really is not mobile at all and very low functioning, have them come to a hospital and stay in a hospital where they're probably not going to go. They're not going to do any of that stuff. Coming to them and meeting them with their needs and where their needs are mm. to get medical services to them. Um, they were talking about how they did that, and they went in and they were talking to the individuals before they provided any care to them. Before they provided any just services. to understand where they are. Right. They spent a year just going down and meeting the people where they were. Well, with the collective, we were also in the point uh, at the process of, like, trying to figure out how can we be more impactful? What, what is the direction? We're trying to figure out where we were going at the time. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so we were trying to, we were just doing a bunch of stuff thinking that this is the right thing to do because no one else is doing this yet and it might be the best thing to do. So I also realized what I could do is through interviewing people and in a different and a, a diverse group of people, um, I might be able to start building out reentry services or a curriculum for reentry services that might be holistic and more impactful as opposed to just saying, okay, what we need to do when we get out is get a job, get a car, get housing, get mm-hmm. these things that are very capitalistic that automa- automatically set us up for failure when we're going to get out because there's like th- a thousand collateral consequence laws that keep us from achieving these things. Right. So in, in, in all the reentry services now that are, that are built are kind of impregnated with this mindset that this is what success looks like. Mm-hmm. And that's not what success looks like for everyone. Right. So... That's another part of this documentary series that that I'm trying to do. And we've already been doing a couple workshops. Um, Actually, we've done one so far, and I've done it over again at a couple different places. Um, It's on trauma and how trauma, the trauma, how the trauma we receive while we're incarcerated, um, how it affects us, how it affects us when we're released and what we could do about it. And like, and not just like deep subjects. yeah, Yeah. And, and, uh, so far, it's got really good reception. I you know, bet. it's it's opened up a lot of ears. People, well, it's a real issue that needs to yeah. be uh, pulled back and looked at. Mm-hmm. I like yeah. that, uh, Harvey. I got to tell you, man, you're you're such an interesting guy, and I think what you're doing uh, could have I'm such rambling. it could you have such I feel like that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you're doing is is uh, could have such a big impact. You know, uh, stay with it, man, because mm-hmm. you you have. You had this background, unique background, that if you use that experience and use it to where your passion is, and I can see it when you talk about this with the docu the docu series and 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 uh, your workshops and and bringing it forward, I, I can see all this coming to fruition just because I think you know you have your passion behind that, and I just good for you. I, question though, going through all you've gone through, mm-hmm. quite a journey. What would you say to the listeners out there is your biggest takeaway of how, how you survived this? I just persevered. I just had to keep going. I just had to, like, when I woke up, even still today when I, when I wake up in the morning, I, I just have to tell myself I can't quit. Can't quit. Right. I just, you just can't quit because I'm stubborn. Mm-hmm. I'm stubborn as shit. And this is, like, another one of these things that my family have instilled in me. And so, like, um, 
you might look at some of my life and say that I've quit on things, but ultimately I, I haven't because that is what has led me to where I am today and the choices that I'm making today and the way that I interact with people and the fact that I have like a lot of empathy for um, and compassion for a lot of people that, that people don't have empathy or compassion sure. for. Because you've been around them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it just... I just can't give up on myself, right? And yeah. if I do give up on myself, then I have this mentality that they've won, they beat me, then then yeah. they were correct, then right. I did belong in that institution, and I did belong in that isolation cell where I was, right? Yeah. That's, where, that's where I belonged, right? So don't quit on yourself. Right. No, love definitely it, do not quit on yourself. I love it. It's good stuff. Good stuff, Harvey. Uh, for anybody out there that's looking for a book to read, I wrote one. It's called Nightmare Success. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, if you want to go to the show, uh, the if you go to Apple, there's like three little bars in the corner there. If you hit that bar, it drops down. And you can you can follow show, and then that'll alert you uh, when a show comes out every week. Uh, the same thing with Spotify. There's a little bell, and it'll notify you when a when – a, uh, you can follow it, and it'll notify you when, when the uh, next episode comes out. Uh, leave me a review on Apple, uh, uh, on Spotify. Love that. Uh, if you want to leave me a message on BrentCassidy.com and anything else that's going on in BrentCassidy.com, check it out. I like that. As I used to say back when I was writing my emails, communicating with people back to uh, family and friends, stay strong, and I'll do the same. Harvey Goller, thank you today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Nightmare success in and out. Thanks for being here today.